Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 451 42 I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. What's good, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, I'm with an old friend, Joel Underwood. How you doing today? How you doing, man? Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you as well. I'm looking forward to recapping Biden's 100 days in office, his first 100 days, and hopefully a little bit longer. Um, do you want to shout out to Helpline and Blue Canary for their sponsorship? Blue Canary now owns the car wash as well and is doing detail, so check that out. In our Patreon page, you can also make a code uh, donation to both the show and Helpline to help the food bank out because people are still in need. And I'd like to welcome Mudwater to the Bystander Podcast. It is a coffee alternative with masala chai, cacao, four mushrooms, cinnamon, turmeric and Himalayan salt and I've been on it for about a week and uh really enjoying the mud water was it they said I thought I read 10 days if you sub out for 10 days you can you can maybe break I need to man I drink too much coffee I drink way too much coffee it it's a seventh of the um caffeine that coffee has oh yeah but it's definitely a calming energy boost at least that's what I've felt I'll try it out man yeah, I'm going to send you some, Joel. Okay. Um, you can make smoothies out of it. You can just drink it like a dirty chai tea or actually put it in your first cup of coffee. Sweet. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Thanks. All right. Hey, so um, Biden is our new president. Mm-hmm. He started out viewing the insurrection right at the beginning of the year. Yeah. What kind of, that's quite the crazy transition. How did you view the insurrection? Well, like most other Americans, uh, I sat and watched hypnotized on the TV for all day long coverage. You know, I started seeing the the headlines coming in 
And I was like, I, I got to watch this. I have to, I have to see what's going on. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a textbook case of words matter and words have consequences. Uh, I know that, that the, the panels have stopped and it looks like we're, we're not going to do any more investigation into it, but I mean, it's very clear uh, the outgoing president fomented insurrection. He, he said, let's go down there. Let's, let's go get those guys. This, this election was stolen. Your vote doesn't count. I mean, these, these words are, our Supreme court has been very, very clear that the, right of, of the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, does not extend to yelling fire in a crowded theater, does not extend to uh, uh, leading towards violence and, and potentially creating violent uprising. And that's exactly what happened here. It was his, his last great shout on the way out the door, and people got killed. Let's, let's never forget that. People got killed because of the words that were said because of telling people your vote was stolen, the election was stolen, there was fraud, go take your government back. All these different words and tweets and speeches that he was making right up to the moment of, those words had consequences and people got killed. And so any anytime anybody tells you, oh, this is just a tweet. Oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, well, my the First Amendment extends to this. No, this, these, these had consequences and they had for some of the protesters and for some of the Capitol police, they were deadly consequences. What is Biden's challenges in rejoining the world? In rejoining the world? Well, I mean, Trump walked back so much in terms of whether you want to talk about the Paris Climate Accord, whether you want to talk about the Iranian nuclear deal, whether you wanted to talk about our relationship with NATO and and how we were paying dues and who was paying dues there. It, what's going on on our Southern border. There was very much this sense of America first and, and not just America first, America only. We're only going to look out for ourselves and we are going to primarily be a protectionist society. And now Biden has to, and in some cases he's done it very quickly with executive orders. He's got to walk that back. He has to, okay, we're back in Paris. We're going we're gonna to exist as if we're back under the Paris Climate Accords. We are now reworking and hopefully looking at getting back in with the Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, we're rethinking how we're, we're working things along our southern border. It's just got to be a constant reassurance of trust to the rest of the world. Okay, we're back. Maybe we have lost our moral ability to lead. We can't sort of do what we used to do and kind of look back over our shoulder and wave our arm and go, hey, everybody, follow me. Because people are like, no, we've, we've seen what happens with, with you for the last four years. And, and the tough thing about democracy is who is to say, and, and the allies who question us on this are absolutely right, who is to say that four years from now, the next person who comes in will not undo all that again? Yeah, so it's 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 very very difficult to create the price you pay for representative democracy that has regular, frequent elections. So to be responsible to the people is that you can't make a lot of guarantees. The right, next I person think, might be the might be. I mean, what if we were, what if we do elect what the name I've seen? What if we elect the Rock? 
What if in 2024 we get the Rock presidency? Who's to say things won't be different again? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we need to, uh, before we rejoin the world, we would need to rejoin America with a less divided culture. And mm-hmm. um, that's going to be difficult. What do you think the consequences of being out of the Paris Agreement for four years was for America? Well, let's let's be clear on the statistics. I mean, if, if America shut down every factory, every automobile, every coal plant tomorrow, if we stopped doing anything that changes the climate tomorrow, the United States itself only counts for about 15% of global pollution, right? The rest is, is India and China and Japan and the European Union and all these other countries that are, are rapidly moving to catch up with the two great economies of the world, the U.S. and China. So what we have been able to do in the past is say, hey, oh, pick a country, India, you guys need to pay more attention as you develop your technological infrastructure and as you as you move into a leadership position in the world, you need to pay attention to what you're doing in the climate. Well, we can't do that. We don't have the moral authority to do that if we're not policing ourselves and we're not playing too. Then when we point our fingers, they go, well, you're not. You didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are scientists out there, blow your mind, there are scientists out there who believe that up to 30% of the crap, the particulates, the, the pollution that is up in the air still circling planet Earth is from the Industrial Revolution in Britain in the 1700s. And that's how long this stuff sticks around. That's mm-hmm. how long th- these consequences are. And But it's very, very difficult for us to look at the developing world and say, hey, developing world, while you're developing, pay attention to the environment. When they look right back at us and go, you didn't. Mm-hmm. There was a point in China's infrastructure drive where they were putting up a dam a day. Think about that for a moment, a dam a day, whether it was the Yangtze river or or their, their various other waterways that they were, they had decided that was how they were going to do it was with hydroelectric power. And Uh, they had the ability, the concrete, the, the manpower to put up a dam a day. Now imagine what that's doing in terms of the environment, but how are we supposed to look at China and go, Hey, China, pay attention to the climate and to the environment while you're involved in your massive growth program, when they can look right back at us and go, you didn't. Right. I mean, look at how long it took the dam at the Elwha River to get removed here in Washington state. Sure. I mean, we still have coal plants. There are still about 80,000 coal miners in the United States population. And we're going to look at India and say, you know what, India, we really have a problem with how you're dealing with the environment as you industrialize. We have yeah. no moral framework to do that. And then we top it off by import-export business with the big ship carriers between these countries and ours. Yeah, and I, I mean, the idea of, of how much product goes back and forth. I mean, when you go to a Walmart, the average product you buy off the store has had a 3,000-mile supply chain. So that's... Uh, Everybody wants to talk about, you know, you want to buy American, we want to buy local, we want to buy. That's great. If you want to do that, are you ready for everything in Amazon, everything at Walmart, 
everything at Kmart to immediately go up at least 25 to 30% in price. Mm-hmm. Are uh, we? Yeah. I'm willing to have the power of less and concentrate on sourcing. It's a big stickler for me. You know, I want to know where it comes from and mm-hmm. that it wasn't made with child labor and that wasn't a blood diamond or whatever it may be. I mean, you, you vote with your wallet. Absolutely. That's that's the thing is, you know, we're going to talk, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot today about voting rights and what's going on in Georgia and all over America. But you also vote with your wallet mm-hmm. by uh, finding out like exactly like you're talking about, where's stuff from, how was it made, purchasing things that agree with your values. And then the step that a lot of people leave out, letting corporations know, hey, I bought this, whether it's through email, whether it's through responding to surveys, whatever. But letting corporations know, hey, I bought this product or I didn't buy this because I pay attention to how things are made. People Mm -hmm. are watching because that's what corporations assume. They assume nobody cares and nobody's watching. So you don't think our images tarnish one way or another so much about being in or out of the Paris Agreement? Because we're, what, one of three countries not involved in it? Sure. I I mean, tarnished is a funny word. I, I think... We can't do the things we say we want to do. No, which fomented is, is a funny word. <laughs> okay, all right, fine. Uh, but we we say that we want to lead the world in terms of dealing with climate change and, and walking back some of the damage we've done. Okay, we don't get to do that if we're not part of the club. That's really what it's all about. If we're not willing to play by the rules, we don't get to set the rules. Do you think there... Uh, Jay Inslee's strong performance in the Democratic debate put climate control further up the pecking order? I think he was a really good goalie in terms of making sure that that was going to get talked about. Now, it just so happened that several of the candidates who were in play there on the Democratic side, that was a big issue for them. And they wanted to talk about that, whether it was Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden himself. Uh, Pete Buttigieg. There, there were multiple candidates who wanted to talk about that, but it was good to have our our governor in there, making certain that if nobody else did, it was going to get talked about. He's really and and by the way, for those of you I I know, there are people, and sometimes I've been among them, who have had this or that problem with how he's dealt with COVID, how he's he's dealt with with this shutdown of these industries versus that. But if you ever do have the opportunity to hear him speak on his his real focus issue, which is climate change and the environment. I, I urge anybody out there to go do it because he's he's incredibly knowledgeable. He's, he's literally written books on the subject and he can tell you more about uh, the acidification of the waters of Puget Sound in 10 minutes than a lot of people can in two hours. Yeah, it's pretty awesome about him. Hillary Franz lives on the island as well and she's the head of the Department of Wildlife and mm-hmm. she... Um, is a strong advocate for fire protection and, and such, and she does it a lot for the environment out here as well. So kudos to both those. Um, you mentioned the pandemic. Of course, Warp Speed came out. We got to give Donald Trump the most credit, perhaps, for that, um, even though it was fleeting. <laughs> the distribution seemed to be an issue with of the vaccine, but now it seems like Biden is really taking hold of it and putting the the vaccine in arms as fast as he possibly can. How do you foresee this rolling out now that we have a couple pauses in 
Johnson Johnson and the European vaccine as well. Um, are we going to still keep rolling it out? I know my first shot comes Sunday and um, I couldn't be more excited. Sure. Well, I mean, th- there's. it turns out that there's two different kinds of vaccines. There's the Moderna-Pfizer type that work one way, and then there's the AstraZeneca-Johnson John- uh, & Johnson type that work the other way. And and let's, let's be real. If anybody out there is listening to this podcast and you're a little freaked out by some of the things you've heard about a Johnson & Johnson pause or whatever, let's be really clear on the numbers. Out, out of about 7 million doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine given, they've had seven cases of, is it down to six? Yeah. Cases of, of this, uh, weird blood clotting thing. And none of them have proved fatal and all of them have been found. I I know I don't fact check on the show, but I believe one was fatal, but I think that was other medicines as well caused blood clots. Right. But that was, I don't think the, the fatal one ended up being, they, they traced that all the way back to the vaccine. Did they? I thought that was, that was comorbidities. Uh. I mean, I, either way, you have a better chance, literally, I'm not, I'm not being uh, in, in any way, um, uh, uh, extra, here's one for you. Facetious. I'm not being facetious. I'm not being, uh, uh, in, in any way over the top on this. You statistically have a better chance of being struck by lightning this year than you do of contracting the, this, this blood clot thing. And if you if you are in any way on the fence, let me ask you this, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a government and a, and a medical establishment that shuts down the production a while to take a look at it and tries to figure out what to tell doctors all that or would you ha- rather have a government and a medical establishment that doesn't tell you right that just says keep on taking everything and you find out later that there were these issues i think th- there's nothing wrong with an abundance of caution now am i scared that there are some people who are going to go you see you see i knew it i knew that yes there's going to be that Okay, and now you're you're going to have to deal with that as well. But the option for folks like the CDC and the World Health Organization and our own president and the and the vaccine rollout was to either not tell people or tell people and and risk that some people are going to be more reticent about taking the vaccine. I think they made the right choice. So we're very optimistic. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've also had numbers spiking some of the largest it was only a couple weeks ago. It was wear two masks. Mm-hmm. I know Yakima is in a situation where they have an uptick and they should remove themselves from the phase that they're in. Right. Out of, out in Whitman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, CDC is saying Michigan should shut down completely. Michigan looks bad. Yeah. What's going on in Michigan? And keep in mind, it wasn't that long ago that the the state legislature out in Michigan voted to remove the power from the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, because they didn't like her because they felt she was, she was too democratic and, and was, was too into shutdowns. She no longer has the power to shut that state down. That must now be done legislatively. And now what do you, you've got the CDC director, you've got Fauci, you've got all the rest begging guys, you, you have to roll back. You have to shut down. We are, we're so close. We're so close. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but we're still a few weeks away from everybody being able to go out there and do everything they want to do. Remember, I take you back to Biden's first press conference. 
He said he'd love for people to be having July 4th barbecues. If you can get out there, you can have some July 4th. We've got enough vaccines in people's arms. We can go out and do July 4th. We're a ways away from that. I know it's really hard. And I suffer from COVID fatigue as much as anybody. I've, I, there have been times where I've, like, I've just got to go out. I've got to go out and play an open stage or I've got to go out and, and go to IHOP and get a wham, bam, slam, <laughs> jam breakfast special or something because I've just, you know, we've all, we've all been inside and we've all been away from each other and we are social creatures, but we're not quite there yet. And, and look down at what's happening in places like Brazil right now. Yep, 4,000 people dead in one day this week. I mean, that's 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 amazing. And by the way, Brazil is not a country without medical infrastructure. They absolutely Correct. have it. But, you know, in terms of rollout and things like that, America responds to crisis very well. You can say that we would, in fact, we, we could do ourselves a favor by not getting into the crisis in the first place. Yeah, but, but this is a global of, crisis, not right. a localized. It's kind, it's kind of like our medical system. If you have cancer, if you have catastrophic illness, America is the single best place in the world to get treated statistically. Now, mm -hmm. if you want to stay healthy and not eat the crap and work out and exercise and not get sick in the first place, we're a ways down on the list. Yes. But we that's kind of our American mindset is we're going to live the way we want to live and do what we want to do. And then we'll solve the problems when they come up. We're not going to get the car's oil changed regularly, but we're going to get really, really good at fixing it when the transmission falls out. <laughs> so there was a little difference in America's response to the rollout versus one in, one administration being the Trump and then the Biden rollout. And it seems like the Biden rollout's a bit smoother. It's still, um, rolling out for sure but some good numbers are i read that bainbridge island 65 and older was 87 percent um vaccinated right. with their first shot all right and i thought that was really good but you look at america and it's less than 30 percent, i believe that's vaccinated mm -hmm. with their first shot so when you say that we have a hang in there we got a little ways to go i think it's a long way to go and I think it's even going to be longer for the EU over there because I think they're about eight, 10 weeks beyond uh, behind our rollout. And then they had to solve the problems of kind of, you know, they were hoarding masks when Italy got hit, you know, and mm -hmm. is there a fair distribution and supply chain in, in that area? Now I think the EU and America are leading vaxxers in a lot of ways, but there's a whole lot of other countries. And my concern is that it's going to take a long time, that fatigue's going to get worse. And then at what point are we going to be helpful and responsible by exporting vaccine to other countries? Sure. Because as, as we've talked about at these microphones before, I mean, biological disasters don't care. Right. They don't. They don't care about borders and border there's no lines. Wall. There's no. There's no walls. If if we're going to live in a global society where you can travel back and forth, you know, across the oceans and across borders, then their problems are your problems, and and that's something that I think the the former administration just really didn't didn't have a handle on. You know, in so many ways, the the vaccine rollout 
was really one of the great rubber meets the road tests of conservative principles versus liberal principles. Because conservatives are, are very wedded to the idea of local governance, local control. You know, the, wherever you are closest to the problem, you know best what to do. And this community is different from that community, so they need different things. And, and really, what a lot of governors would tell you is that the Trump administration kind of went, okay, every state can kind of do what they want. Every state can kind of buy their own vaccines. And, and remember, back when, when all this started, before the vaccines even, remember, you had states bidding against one another, American states bidding against one another for PPE equipment. Yeah, medical supplies and such. Medical supply. I mean, I mean that's, that's crazy. They're really, if you, if you were to ask our own governor, he would tell you, as he has said many times on camera and to microphones, there wasn't really a federal strategy for a long time. The federal strategy was help get the vaccine made. And then after that, okay, every state can kind of do what it wants the way it wants. That Well, that's heavy-duty conservative principles, right? Okay, let the marketplace police itself and, and local control. Well, now you have Biden and the Democrats coming into power who believe that uh, the federal government can be an agency for good, that they can actually help, whether it's FEMA after hurricanes or whatever. Um, and, and there is historical precedent for that. I mean, how long would it, if you let every state do everything individually, how long would it have taken, for instance, for the state of Mississippi to desegregate its schools if we were all, we did it that all whenever we wanted to? How long would it have taken for the state of Vermont to put a man on the moon? If we were all just going to do that, they're just, you know, you think the state of Arkansas is a lovely state, but you think they're going to go and defeat Hitler? No, there are times when we're 50 states and there's times when we're all one big government. And one of the great differences between liberals and conservatives is when are we at one big government and when are we 50 individual states with their individual communities? And it turns out that with a pandemic, seems like we do better when we're one big country, but we are very married in this country to the idea of our in, of, of individual states, that I'm not just an American, I'm a Washingtonian, and I'm very proud of that, or I'm a North Carolinian, and I'm very proud of that, and that's part of my identity. And that's that's been something that we have held on to white knuckle, even to our detriment sometimes. So I have fa family in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and mm -hmm. recently... There was a little pride out in Idaho, as you know. There's, there's some sections of pride. Oh yeah, most proud people in uh, Oregon and Idaho. Um, but there was a bar that sent a warning, I think, to the Seattle Times, telling Washingtonians not to cross the border and come over there to their bar. Ooh, okay. And I was like, okay, there's separation of states right there. And I remember when I was a little kid stopping at a gas station like five or six, probably 50 years from now, um, somebody told my dad to go back across the borders then. And I was, I didn't really know what a Washingtonian was. Mm -hmm. And that, now I know it's a Jay Inslee drinking game when he gives a speech. <laughs> yes, that's true too. Um, but I had, we had stopped because I, the sign said ice cold beaver ages. Mm -hmm. And I asked my dad what the beaver age was. And he said, well, we'll go into this uh, podunk gas station here in Idaho, and you can ask the clerk what a beaver age is. 
The clerk didn't know, but that's when I learned about beverages. Yes. Um, I was just saying it as I, I could read it as a five or six-year-old. But I remember that was probably my first introduction to hate. And it was uncomfortable. And I didn't like it. And um, my dad always taught me kindness. So, Well, healthcare is where the, the, the state identity stops being fun right? It's all wonderful to say, oh, I'm a proud Texan or, oh, I'm a, you know, oh, I'm a New Yorker. We're different. But healthcare is where that changes. If we get into this situation, which we're already moving towards, where all these 50 different states can have a totally different patchwork healthcare system. Okay. So where does your moral conscience come into play there? Let's say just for fun, just for instance, that tomorrow, the state of Washington, we decided we had a statewide national uh, uh, healthcare system. In other words, to a total healthcare system, you pay your taxes, you just go in, you show your driver's license, you get healthcare. Okay. What are we going to do if Oregonians and Idahoans who, you know, need some healthcare start jumping across the border to our hospitals in places like Spokane and Vancouver, Washington, and saying, I'm sorry, I'm very sick. I'm hurt. At what point do we go? You don't pay taxes here. You guys have decided you want a private healthcare system. We're sorry, we're not going to treat you. Or look at a state like Arkansas, where they've just told uh, uh, kids under 18, okay, you can't even talk with a doctor about potential uh, uh, trans medical care. All right. And, and that kid now has to cross a state line to find a doctor right. that they can talk to. But not every kid can. Not every, not every, person has the ability to, if your state is really tough on abortion, not every person has the ability to jump in a car and cross a state line and get their medical needs met. So this all, oh, I'm really proud of what state I'm in and I live in this state. That's all fun. That's all fine and great until you get to things where it really matters, like right. healthcare. And then it gets, then it gets real. Okay. This is about Biden. We can't get too sidetracked on you got it. You got it. because, you got it. uh, you know, so many hospitals over 80 percent are religious based hospitals now and that's going to change the privatization how healthcare is going to be dispersed yeah yeah, from those places and what procedures can and can't be done and Mm -hmm. yeah we're all going to be rubbing crystals together and drinking herbal tea and mud water healthcare is the ball game man we've all got we we might not all want to own a gun but we've all got a body yes hey um can you explain how Biden is trying to improve the filibuster system? So the filibuster, the thing that, that everybody sort of forgets about the filibuster, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. It's nowhere in the Constitution. It came much later. All right. And the idea is that if you are the minority party, if you are the party that, that has the, the fewest uh, members of the Senate, a bill comes up that you don't want to pass. In, if you if there's a straight vote, you know you're going to get beat. So the way the filibuster was intended is, all right, we're not going to vote on it. I'm going to delay the vote as a senator by I'm just going to stand up. I'm going to claim the podium and I'm going to start talking. And as long as I can talk and not yield the floor, we're not going to come up for a vote. Well, obviously, for one human being, there's a finite limit on that. Eventually, I'm going to do a Mr. Smith goes to Washington and, and you know, faint off the side of the podium. But if you can get three, four senators who can recognize just each other and keep working round robin 
and hold the pot. You can keep a bill from coming up for a vote. A vote, and not only can you keep that bill from coming, you have basically put the brakes on. You have halted the function of the United States Senate and the United States government, in effect, by saying, "I'm not going to stop talking." Well, what that has turned into is now senators. You don't even actually need to do the talking. You just need to threaten a filibuster. Well, it takes sixty votes to beat a filibuster to to sit somebody down. So suddenly, we have gone from needing fifty-one votes to pass a piece of legislation to have a simple majority to now you need sixty, which is only nine. But in the Senate, in a very very evenly divided Senate, that's a ton. So you need nine more votes. You need sixty votes to not only pass a bill but to break a filibuster of that bill. And what that has done over the last couple of decades is that has ground the business of the United States legislature to a screeching halt. And it's really hard to get stuff done. It's really hard to get stuff passed, even when your party won the majority in the past election. So there's this big movement out there, and they're they're not wrong that says if Biden wants to get any of his agenda passed into law, the first thing you're going to have to do is get rid of the filibuster. Because the Republicans can basically stop anything by threatening to filibuster. Now, Biden himself has said he's not necessarily a fan of ending the filibuster. Remember, he was in the Senate for a long time, and he's been in the majority, and he's been in the minority. And his argument, and it's it holds water, is okay. You want to end the filibuster now because you have a fifty-one. Well, with with Vice President Kamala Harris breaking ties you have a majority. But what happens if the next election, suddenly you turn around and now you only have 47 members and now you're the minority party? You're going to want that filibuster back. So be careful what you do today. You may rue tomorrow. Now, the other name that really comes into this heavy duty is Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is the senator from West Virginia. He is a Democrat, though some people would call him a dino, D-I-N-O, Democrat in name only. He is, but not to be confused with Joe Exotic. No, very, very different. Very different. Um, though that one might be thinking of running for public office too at some point, and <laughs> with our luck, he'd probably win. Uh, but the idea is that he is he is a very conservative Democrat, and we used to have those, mm-hmm. right? There used to in parties you used to have conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats, and conservative Republicans and liberal Republicans. You don't really have those anymore. The parties have have split uh, down the split, middle exactly. Have polarized. A- as a result, you've got this one guy, Joe Manchin, who is now very powerful because he's kind of a throwback. He doesn't, when all the Democrats say, hey, guys, we all need to get together and all vote for this, he goes, I don't know if I will or not. I'm going to look at things issue by issue by issue. I like that approach. That's kind of cool. That's the thing. And if we had a Senate full of Joe Manchin, and by the way, yes. I've, I've, talk, I've, I've, I've watched him give speeches. He doesn't foam at the mouth. He's a very reasoned, intelligent guy. And if we had a Senate that was full of those, we would probably be a better functioning government. But we don't. We have an evenly balanced 50-50 Senate. And so when you lose one vote, one vote, your thing isn't going to happen. And Joe Manchin has let it be known far and wide. He is no fan of, of not having the filibuster. He likes the filibuster. Now, his reason is a little bit different than Joe Biden. He feels like that in a two-party democracy, you should have to deal with the other party some. 
If you just, if you're a Democrat and you just want some things to happen, you shouldn't be able to steamroll over the other party. You should have to go and make your case to, and try to, and if you can't get 10 Republicans or nine Republicans to, to sign onto your bill, maybe your bill isn't very good. So he, this one, you know, middling guy has become much like um, Susan Collins of Maine or Claire McCaskill uh, as was in the last administration Whenever any piece of legislation comes up, you have to go court them and take them out to dinner and say, please vote, because they're the swing votes. They're the these 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 wild cards. So, yeah, I don't see the filibuster going anywhere anytime soon. So you don't think Biden's going to do much about it? He he has said that what he would like to do is get it back to a place where you at least have to do the talking, where you at least have to actually filibuster. Mm-hmm. And not simply threaten a filibuster because he thinks that would make things uh, a little more normative. I don't know if that's the case, but uh, no, he is still, you know, this is this is the thing that makes some people crazy about Joe. He is still very much into the idea that he can reach across the aisle. He can bridge. He can help bring us together. He can heal. And there's a big chunk of America that really doesn't seem interested in that. Yeah. Um, we do not want to unite on all fronts. That's for sure. Not, there's some people who just aren't. Yeah. I mean, it's fair. I didn't want to unite with the last, last guy. Well, that's, and that's the question. I mean, that's why that, did you see that Bruce Springsteen Super Bowl ad that fell so flat? Yeah. Where he was out in the middle of the country in his Jeep and he was talking about how it was, Oh, that we need to come together and we need to come together. And it really fell kind of flat because a lot of people felt it was kind of tone deaf. Look, there's incredible violence in America right now against Asians. And and if, if you're somebody who wants to go out there and, you know, punch and kick like that horrible piece of video, uh, if you're somebody who wants to go out there and, and punch little old women because you're they're Asian, no one should meet in the middle with you. Well, Nobody should back, come together with you. Yeah, there, should, come, there should be no common ground with you. It, it goes back to your first statement that words have meaning, you know, mm-hmm. and starts with the Kung flu. Oh God. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The best meme I saw was in China. We call it the white house flu. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing is if, if what you want to do is just sort of start tweeting and throwing these grenades. Yeah. Eventually they're microaggressions they're, that turn into macroaggressions. They're, they're going to come back. They have, you know, I, I, I spend all my time teaching my students words, mean things, words, mean things. And when you use them right, they can be incredibly powerful. And when you use them wrong, they have disastrous consequences. Okay. A filibuster can stall. We have 50, 50 house Senate, basically. Um, how did this voter suppression and voting rights bill legislation, whatever you call it, get passed in Georgia so fast other oh, than Georgia, you know, eight old white guys signing a bill. Yeah, I mean, it just, I mean, put the bill itself to the side for the second. Even, even let's say there was really a problem there with fake voting machines or whatever, or, or the, to suddenly discovering mail-in ballots. Even if that were true, which it's not, but even if it were true, to change the rules, to start voting to change the rules in your favor right after you lost just looks bad. Yeah, optics of the whole thing is horrible. It's, it's, Especially as, with what happened to Stacey Abrams. 
mm-hmm. in a prior election. As as you well know on the on the soccer field, the team that's usually bitching about the refs and the rules and you're not calling fouls and you're not handing out enough cards is almost never the winning team. Generally, if you're complaining, you're losing. Yep. And the, the Republicans, the, the conservative movement in this country can do math just as well as anybody. They can look ahead and they can see that the electorate is changing. They can look ahead and see that the, the, their stalwarts and who they can count on to vote Republican is shrinking as a demographic and who can be counted on to vote Repub- uh, d- democratically usually is growing. So if they're going to still have any chances of things, they have to change the rules. And that's what you're seeing. And by the way, Democrats have let them do this. I mean, over the last 30 years, while the Democrats have been content to win national elections, Republicans have been totally packing governorships, state houses, state legislatures, state court and and federal circuit judicialships. They've been, Mitch McConnell largely, has been seeing where the real game is going to be played. And they've had the strategy that, okay, if there's going to be fewer of us, we have to change the rules to benefit us. And that means we have to pack the places where the rules are changed. And that's what's going on down in Georgia. Mitch is his own filibuster. You know, Mitch is, and hasn't it been interesting over the last couple of weeks to watch the, the divorce that you never saw, that you never thought would happen. The Republican Party led by Mitch McConnell and corporate America and large corporations. Mitch telling corporations, you should stay out of politics and, you know, getting upset about Major League Baseball pulling out of Atlanta and all that. Did you ever really see, I mean, corporate America and the the Republican Party, which have been so hand in glove, now suddenly splitting. It's weird. Yeah. Um, so Trump had sanctions against Iran and it looks like Biden's trying to get involved with um, a new Iranian nuclear deal. Can you bring mm-hmm. us up to speed with what's going on there? Okay. It's, so anytime you talk about anything in the Middle East, whether it's Iran, whether it's Syria, whether it's our involvement with Saudi Arabia, you know, it's really, it's, it's like gum in a kid's hair. You, you want us to just separate out one strand and talk about it, but it's all incredibly interrelated. It's it's all totally interrelated. You know, obviously, Iran, they would tell you they're just trying to develop nuclear power to have nuclear power. And places like Israel and our own United States intelligence community has told us, no, you're trying to develop weapons. They're enriching to a weapons-grade degree. Uh, so the question then is, at what point do we say enough? At what point do we do something about it? They just had an explosion at a major nuclear facility and they claim that it was done. And by the way, anything that happens bad to pretty much any country in the middle East, they're going to point their finger right at Israel and say, we know you did it. We know. Yeah. Because they're looking for an excuse to, to start shit with Israel. That's, that's always the case, but then you've still got uh, Iran propping up Bashir al-Assad in Syria while the Saudis are propping up the Sunni rebels there uh, and, and that proxy war going on. I mean, it, it's, and then you've got the Kurds and the, the Kurdish minorities. It's all kind of one big stew that we as sort of compartmentalized thinking 
Americans would like to just deal with one thing at a time. Okay, can we just deal with the Israel-Palestinian situation? Okay, can we just deal with uh, what's going on in Syria and getting Bashir al-Assad out of power? But you can't. To them, it's all one big thing because, because, because they live in a place where the borders between countries are much newer. In many cases, they were imposed upon them by colonial powers, and they didn't get a choice. And so they mean a lot less to them. They, they care much more about whether they are, for instance, Sunni or Shia Muslim than they are Syrian or uh, uh, Saudi Arabian Muslim. The, the, those things matter less to them. And as a result, everything's just kind of one big gooey conflict. So how does Biden find any success there? That's the question that every president's been asking, you know, since before Jimmy Carter. Uh, I, I tell you what you don't do is you don't ignore what's actually all making it happen. I mean, around the year, I'll, I'll go all the way back to, to 630 AD, when when the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was was passing away, they had to decide who was going to lead the faithful. And there was a contingent that wanted his uncle to do it. And there was a contingent that wanted his son-in-law to do it. His uncle, because his uncle was a man of the people, was interested in getting community consensus to figure out what was going to happen in Islam. His son-in-law, because his son-in-law was obviously married to his daughter, and therefore further descendants would have the blood of the prophet in him. And that became Sunni, the people who followed the uncle, versus Shia, meaning blood in the Arabic, who, who followed the son-in-law. And to this day, you have about eh, 80 to 90% of the Muslim world is Sunni. All right, You have about 10 to 15% of the Muslim world that is Shia. But that 10 to 15% tends to be wealthy. It tends to be the aristocracy. It tends to be families and dynasties that have been in power for a long time. And so you have, for instance... Iran, which is a Shia theocracy, where the church and the state are basically one, and then you have Saudi Arabia, which is a Sunni mon monarchy, so you've got even two different ideas of how to run a country, and they just are constantly butting heads and hating each other. So then in Syria, just to make matters more complicated, you have a Shia minority ruling over a Sunni majority, and so the Saudi Arabia has come in and they're backing up the rebels and Iran has come in and they're backing up Bashir al-Assad. So why does all this matter? It matters because when George W. Bush sent people into Iraq in basically a, a familial revenge war because he was pissed about what happened with his dad, he threw us for all intents and purposes into the middle of a religious civil war. He threw the United States troops you know, young people's lives, treasure, money, resources, all of that. He put us into the middle of a religious civil war. And I have distinct memories of watching on TV as a reporter asked him, Mr. President, do you know the difference between Sunni and Shia Islam? And he did not. So if you're asking me, you know, what's the thing we can do? One of the things I always used to tell my students, you get in a lot of trouble when you think that, a problem that had multiple complex causes has a single solution. So that's not it. But I tell you what you don't do is you don't inject yourself into centuries old conflict, not even knowing what the conflict is about. 
And so, that's what we have been willing to do. Um, Biden had some type of war response recently. It's kind of like there's so much uh, stupid stuff in the news and the clickbait cycle goes so fast. It's, right. it's hard to keep up. But that seems like a major story that wasn't really told. You would think, well, well to take it back to Trump, I mean, Trump, the, the one thing that he stayed he, out, right? Well, in fact, he stayed out. Some people would argue too much. The the one one of the few things that the Lindsey Grahams of the world and, and the Republicans of the world really banged Trump on was withdrawing troops from the Syrian Turkey border and leaving the Kurds just out there hanging, you know, right. to be massacred by the the turks and and also you know by by whoever else but wants I, to i don't understand why then, he took the troops out of there but he didn't take the troops out of afghanistan under the same reasoning and today obviously i just i just got finished on tv watching uh, uh joe he just gave a, a speech just now interrupted uh the afternoon news to say that everybody's coming out of afghanistan by september 11th of this year we'll see if that happens Obviously, that's going to be responsive to the situation on the ground. But then, yes, you have Joe who decides he's going to do airstrikes in in Syria in response to things that are happening in Iran. Right. Keep in mind, the, the airstrikes that Biden ordered in, in Syria were not about what was going on in Syria. They were striking a camp that happened to be in Syria and a facility that happened to be in Syria that was related to the Iranian to the to the Iranian uh, Shiite systems there. So again, we we would love this all to be about nice, clean borders on a map, and we're sending our troops to this country and only this country. That's not how the Middle East works. They're That's jumping what, back and forth and crossing borders, and they don't care. You know? Yeah, and I'm not optimistic about Afghanistan, and I'll tell you why. September 11th is a 20th anniversary of 9/11. Mm-hmm. And it is pictures and social media tags and feel-good story time being manipulated. It's it's not a solution. It's if if we do it then, why can't we do it today or yesterday or mm-hmm. months ago? Um, yeah. So I'm not as optimistic about Afghanistan. And there are those who would tell you the, the in. You know, if, if we were to pull the Joint Chiefs of Staff right now, they would say giving us a hard date that you're going to pull out is a terrible idea yeah. because what are they going to do? They'll just wait. Yeah. We'll just wait till you're gone. And then we'll have the exact same. And what we always, of course, have to look back to is the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union pulled out of Afghanistan. They just turned around one day and left. They were like, we're tired of this being our Vietnam. Swivel the tanks around. We're going home. Well, what did that leave? That left a power vacuum. And, and, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And who came swooping in? Al-Qaeda, the Wahhadis, Mujahideen. And, and this, we, this is what eventually led us to 9-11. So if this happens again, what are we going to get this time? Mm. But the alternative in Joe's, in Joe's defense is, are you going to say, okay, we're just going to stay here forever. This is going to turn it into our 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 germany our our you know we're we're just going to set up military bases here and we're just going to hang out we're just going to have we are going to have a, a us military presence in about 30 to 40% of the globe hmm. part of me believes that we're in the business of selling weapons so the more wars going on 
we are supplying more and more weapons to more and more wars and making more money. Yeah. Is that a fear I should have? Absolutely. And you and I have sat at these microphones before with a guy that we like a lot, Mr. Perkins, okay, who would tell you he would go even a step farther than that. And in his his first book, he would say that this is how we expand the American empire is we give these countries loans and then in come the troops and then we do the bases and then we say, yeah, I don't think it's really safe for us to leave. No, no, no. And you really, you couldn't pay back those loans. So we're going to need to take that oil a little cheaper than you're selling it to the rest of the world. Again, once you sort of sign on to the idea that America is an empire, just like the British had an empire, just like the Romans had an empire, once you sign on to that, well, yeah, that's kind of what this looks like. We're in all these other countries militarily, economically. We are expanding U.S. presence and reach around the globe. So we have people to buy our stuff, whether it's weapons or soccer balls. That's, that's what we do. I, I know as President Biden is trying to get a summit with leaders together, um, including China's leader, Jinping, correct? Uh, Jinping, yeah. Jinping. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure he's not listening, so I mm-hmm. don't mind butchering his name. Um, as far as China goes, do you feel like their currency could take over the world currency and become the dominant currency down the road? That's the great fear, isn't it? I mean, that's that's the big thing we've got going for us in so many of the global financial markets is other countries measure their debt and measure their GDP in US dollars. We are the measurement. We are the standard. If that ever were to change, we would lose a great deal of of economic power throughout the world. Um, Again, I go back to the gum and the hair metaphor. I mean, our economy and China's economy are We could not extract ourselves from each other if we wanted to. They buy so much of our stuff. We buy so much of their stuff. I mean, we we are in so many ways so globally linked. In fact, I saw... Did that start with TVs? They were making them cheaper than they cost to make, and then they started importing to U.S., and that's how we got hooked? And clothing, yeah, and, and textiles. I mean, and then, of course, when Foxconn came along, and Steve Jobs was getting iPhones made in Shenzhen in the Foxconn factory. I mean, we were, we were utterly and totally interlinked. There's this story. Um, I, I believe, I can't remember if it was a white house dinner, but, but Steve Jobs was, and, and uh, president Obama were having dinner and as part of a much larger group and president Obama asked Steve, Steve, when are we going to get some of those iPhones made in America? And Jobs said, "Is it when I when we were we were about six weeks away from shipping the first iPhone?" And suddenly there was a, a beep on the phone, and he told his entire executive team, "Get the f in here!" Because Steve Jobs was sometimes a little colorful in his language. They all came in. Jobs was holding one of the prototype iPhones, and it had a big scratch down the glass. And he said. I got this because I was keeping it in my pocket 
with my keys. Now, where do you chuckleheads, I'm using a nicer word, think that most people are going to keep their iPhones? And finally, some brave guy goes, uh, in their pocket with their key, in their pocket with their keys. And then he said, I want scratchless glass on all the iPhones before we ship them. And everybody's eyes got huge. And they're like, Steve, that's a that's a huge change. That's impossible. There's no way we're going to be able to do that. He's like, that's what I want. So everybody left and they split into two teams. One team is the American team. And they went to the only country, the company in America that really could accomplish that. Single largest glass manufacturer in America, Corning. Okay. Uh, they go to, I think it's Tennessee. They fly there. They talk to the people that day about it. And the next day, Corning calls them back and says, hey, listen, we're really excited about this. Uh, we think we can do it. We've got some prototypes mocked up. We're making some changes in the factory. And we feel very confident that we can do scratchless glass on all your iPhones. And your production schedule will only be about six to nine weeks behind. Well, that's like nothing in the tech world. Six to nine weeks, that's awesome. Things are six to nine weeks delayed all the time. Mm-hmm. The other group is the Chinese group. They make a phone call. They get in a limousine. They go to the airport, fly across the Pacific to Shenzhen, China, where the iPhones are being made. By the time they land and take the car to the Foxconn factory, the Foxconn people meet them and say, we've already gone over to the barracks. We've woken up. Uh, a, a whole extra shift of our workers who live by the factory. We've given them each a cup of tea and a cookie. We have retooled the factory and we'll have the first scratchless glass iPhones coming off tomorrow. And Jobs looked at Obama and he said, when American companies can do that, then I'll, I'll be able to bring manufacturing over to the United States. Good story. I mean, geez, you can't compete with that. People living in barracks right next to the factory, waking them up at 24-hour cycles and giving them tea and a cookie and saying, get in there and get to work. This is back, of course, when they were putting nets around the roof to try to catch the, the workers the who would go jumpers. up to the top and jump off. I mean, that's, that's what you're dealing with. That's what you're competing See, against. This is why... The sourcing is so important to me. Absolutely. Because those Chinese factories that we import stuff, and I'm guilty of owning an iPhone. Sorry. Um, it was like the first hit of crack was free, and then it just kept coming exactly. back. Exactly. Um, but I don't want to buy things from China. I don't care if it's less expensive because I know the conditions that the people work in and live in don't justify that purchase for me personally. Um, of course, everything gets slipped in here or there. You don't know what's in the motherboard of your computer and yada, yada, yada. Um, do you think there's a possibility? I know I've asked you this before that we boycott the Beijing Olympics in any fashion based on the relationship that we have with China right now. We've done it before. Um, you know, it's tough because, and, and, and this is where it kind of ties all these things in together that we're talking about. You see all these companies like Major League Baseball and Coca-Cola 
and, and so willing to pull out of Georgia, so willing to not do business in Georgia because, oh, voting rights, uh, and that's that's terrible, terrible. But they're absolutely fine doing billions of dollars of business in places like China and Saudi Arabia that, that create incredibly large markets for them, but have terrible human rights records. Mm-hmm. So it, it, is a, it feels a little hypocritical to me that when the rubber meets the road in Atlanta, suddenly, you know, Coca-Cola grows a conscience. But if you were to ask them tomorrow to pull out of, the out rain of China, forest. they would, there's no way. Um, man, it's tough. I mean, and this is something you probably, you, you would know more about than I. I mean, you have lived and, and breathed in that high-level athletics world. I mean, these, these people who get ready for this, they work their whole lives. I mean, their whole lives to prepare to be an Olympic athlete and the window of time during which you can be a competitive Olympic athlete in your life is so tiny. And, and anytime you're going to do anything like a boycott or economic sanctions or anything like that, you really have to look hard and ask yourself, are you punishing who you mean to punish? Right. Are you punishing China or are you punishing these athletes? Are you, I think definitely the athletes because the athletes cannot have, um, a job because their job is becoming this athlete. Yeah, they need sponsorship t- for travel to get to these meets and such to compete. Um, gear, shoes, pole vault, whatever it may be. Sure. Um, practice time with the team if it's a team sport. But the majority of money that's made in the Olympics is not by the athlete, and only a few athletes really make any money. And it's the best of the best, not like the best Joel Underwood that lives in Olympia. Right, it's the best out of every country in the world. Right, and then the, the Sean Whites, ne- you know, yeah. they still have to negotiate a sp- a, sp- a sponsor or a commercial mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, you know, because every- the sport itself doesn't track and field doesn't pay. Yeah. There's not sixty thousand people in the stadium. They're not selling tank tops to people. Yeah. For every Sean White, for every Lindsey Vaughn, you know, for every Michael Phelps you you know of, th- there's hundreds that are that you're never going to hear of that are going to go back to their hometown and open a little bar and put that medal behind them on the wall and it's going to be great. But they're not going to make a career off of their. They're not going on a Wheaties box somewhere. They're not Simone Biles, and and that's that's who you're you're kind of hurting. You know, and, and you have to ask the question with any sanctions you do, how effective are they going to be? Is China really going to change its policy b- based on you not sending these Olympic athletes back one more time? Or is, is this just grandstanding? I mean, what China really wants to know, let's talk about what China really wants to know. What China really wants to know is one day when they finally do reach over the straits, reach over the, the China Sea, and they say, we're taking Taiwan back. Are you going to do anything? Are you going to put the ships in the water? Are you going to pull out the subs? Are you going to put the missiles in the air when we finally do take Taiwan back and say Taiwan is? So remember, China still does not recognize Taiwan. Right. Still, still say it's part of them. Are you? Are we going to take those? When we take those millions of people back, are you going to do anything, or are you just going to stand there and watch it happen? That's going to be an interesting situation, and I hope to have a guest on upcoming from Nepal that can shed some light on that as well yeah and well i mean you look at what's been what's happened in tibet 
and yeah. the rest of the world didn't do oh we were outraged oh we we had you know what we had we had some concerts had some rock concerts for tibet uh but but we haven't done jack so you know is it okay what did we do when when russia reached over and said you know what i think we'd like ukraine back and reached and got it okay do anything yugoslavia yeah we did nothing uh you know i, I think about when we were talking about um iran and syria and such imagine rolling out a vaccine in those conditions and who gets it first and the who rich. gets it all you know and and do do men get it before women you know do do faithful followers do we hand it out at mosques do do the imams decide who who get? I mean, th- there's all these different. You know, we we assume that everybody does things the way we do it, and and different countries have different priorities. Uh, it, it's it's very very it's it's going to be super difficult to enforce our medical what morals, I guess, on other countries. And should we even do so? I think we absolutely must try to find ways to help. Certainly, if you look at, at our own neighbors, Mexico and Canada, I mean, their disease is our disease. Their sickness is our sickness. Mm-hmm. And then you look at what's going on on our southern border. If the world isn't good in Ecuador and Guatemala and, and Honduras, we're going to feel it. You mm-hmm. know, when during, during the Trump administration, families were coming up and they were separating families at the border, sending the adults back and keeping the kids in detention centers. Now you've got a totally different problem where families are waking up in the morning and going, okay, it's time for you to walk 800 miles by yourself as an unaccompanied minor to the border and maybe wait in a detention center for six months to a year so that you can get away from here. Not that you can have this incredible better life there. They're not sending their kids hoping they can go to Stanford one day. They're sending them because it's so incredibly dangerous where, where they, they are between yeah. the cartels and, and the, the revolutions and the uprisings. Uh, that What parent wakes up and does that? I, I can't imagine doing that. But they're doing that because they fear for their children's lives. And thus, this incredible journey is the safer option that's incomprehensible to me yeah what what do you think biden's biggest challenge at the border is now well i mean it's it's that it's the fact that you're dealing with down the stream trying to fix a problem that's happening at the source and so he's he's, he's taken harris he's taken his vice president and said this is your this is your baby now this is your thing i really want you to take the lead on this which is great. Um, I find it interesting, and granted, this is COVID, so we, we can't make big judgments on this, but I find it interesting that she hasn't visited any of the places yet. Mm-hmm. But what, what really is, is eventually going to be the thing is going to be the thing that conservatives and Republicans so often kick and scream at. We're going to have to massively up our foreign aid to that part of the world. And, oh, if there's one thing that just conservatives and Republicans hate, it's foreign aid. Oh, cut the foreign aid. Oh, we hate foreign aid. Oh, we give, oh, we waste so much in foreign aid. Oh, so much in foreign aid is horrible. We're not getting anything from that. Crap. We're getting security from it. We're, we're getting border security. We're getting anti-terrorism and counter-terrorism from it. Okay, foreign aid is, is an incredibly useful thing to the average American citizen, even if they don't realize it. Because... 
you want to talk about you know drugs coming here or or immigration out of control or whatever it happens to be the answer is make things better where these people are mm -hmm. they should understand it in the lens of fema and red cross and the hurricanes across america the flint michigan water i mean the hanford nuclear site hanford nuclear alone yeah Oof. i mean those people are still in those areas, you know, and, and they need support. It, but and, isn't so much of what we're dealing with in all these problems that we're talking about kind of come under the umbrella of a lack of empathy? I, I don't look at your problem and see it as my problem, too. I see I my problems at, as my problem. I look at it as people don't even understand the word empathy. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's not a word that's taught practiced by everybody it's kind of like common sense some people see the line where they're passing out common sense they go i could probably just skip it as opposed to wait for this common sense in line <laughs> oh god um I'll let you go here in a sec but um last thing i wanted to touch on is our relationship with the saudi crown prince and how mm. biden seems to be protecting mm. him after the journalist was dismembered Saudi Arabia in general, man, we just give them a pass. We've decided, I mean, again, like I'm talking about with the whole Sunni and Shia thing, there's basically in the Middle East, you can be on Team Iran or you can be on Team Saudi Arabia. And we've picked, for better or for worse, Team Saudi Arabia. And and it's constantly, where I mean, look at where all the 9-11 the hijackers were from and trained. Look at their incredible human rights abuses. Look at what they do to, to women and LGBTQ members of their population. Um, forget the fact that it's a monarchy and supposedly we're a democracy. We don't, mm. we, we're not the fan of the monarchical system, but we've picked them and they buy a lot of our military hardware. We buy a lot of their oil. That would be a very hard mutual extraction from one another. Yeah, but it's human rights. I mean, it is that come into play as the number one consideration. It doesn't in China. It doesn't. It, I mean, that's the thing. We're we're in bed with a lot of bad people all over, dude. We're bad ourselves, Joel. K Gaddafi was our guy till he wasn't. Saddam. Saddam was our guy till he wasn't. I mean, that's the thing. We've been we've been we were in bed with Godin Diem and in Vietnam and and I mean. We have we've gotten we've hooked our, our wagon to a lot, a lot, a lot of bad people in the name of they're saving us from worse people. I mean, hell, the reason we're totally not opening up a can of whoop ass on Bashir al-Assad in Syria is because he claims he's fighting ISIS. He's fighting ISIS. The people who are rising up against him are the same people who are ISIS. And, well, we see the proof in, proof in that all the time, right? Exactly. Because, you know, when the chlorine gas spreads out from the town square, it picks who it will and will not affect. Right. No, absolutely not. So, yeah, so yeah I mean, what, what the, the Saudis did was a clear message sent to reporters in that and, and the press establishment in general in that country. Do not criticize us. Do not uh, speak out against the government. And... We're, we're apparently giving them a pass on it. We're apparently giving them a pass on inviting a guy over to the embassy, slicing him up, uh, you know, Pulp Fiction style, 
and and we're apparently we're, very bad our, things style with our well, yeah with our first amendment and our free press we're apparently giving them a pass well with my press credentials i will never wear a name tag that says journalist on it exactly when they when they tell you why don't you come into the end no don't don't do that that ain't me but you know we joke about that but it is funny that you and i are sitting here at these microphones right now in every oh every 10 minutes or so we're criticizing our own government in some way and in in other countries we would be invited into the embassy and you know dismembered for, for just for just our little our little podcast that we're doing you know yeah i think i'm moving to new zealand Ooh. it's nice there it's apparently lovely got the occasional earthquake but yeah yeah, well, Seattle's due for one too. So, shh. <laughs> say the e word. All right, Joel Underwood, um, consultant, debate coach, singer songwriter, actor, and host of a song for Main Street. Yes, indeed. New podcast that I enjoyed very much. Oh, you're kind. Um, please go out there and try some mud water. The link to our affiliate site is in the story details of this podcast. Joel, anything you want to say? Uh, not really, man. Just thanks for for having me again. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. And and uh, if you're again, if you're at all on the fence about going out and getting vaccinated, please, please do so. The sooner you do, take advantage of of the medical infrastructure we've got that we're lucky to have the sooner we can all get back to sitting in the 300 section at, at T-Mobile field with a dog and a beer watching the Mariners on a sunny day. So yep. go out, go out and get them shots. Yeah. Seattle dogs love the hot dog with cream cheese. Oh, yeah. Hey, um, we should also dedicate this podcast to your fallen father-in-law, Bob White. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Of say you a couple to, words about him. Nice of you to recall, you know, my, my father-in-law who, who passed on Monday morning, uh, he was my favorite guy to talk about politics with. He was one of the last of the old time newsmen. He came up through news, managed uh, the newsroom and then managed whole stations in Denver and Seattle uh, and Los Angeles and Detroit. And uh, one of the things that always struck me about him is he believed real strongly that to be a real newsman, you should understand what you're talking about. You should be able to write and put a couple of words together. You shouldn't just look good on camera. You shouldn't just be able to read copy that somebody else wrote off a screen. He was, he was kind of the last of a dying breed. And uh, if I am able to, to talk cogently about politics with, with anybody, a large part of it is because I had a lot of practice sitting out there at, at Long Beach uh, watching college football and, and talking endlessly about it with him. So we'll miss him. And you know, he got out of the news business when the news business was turning into something he really didn't like uh, in terms of, of cable and, and 24 hours and, and all of that. And, and we won't just miss him. We'll miss what he stood for. So a send off to, to my father-in-law, Bob White. And uh, yeah, we, you know, did it dedicate this one to him. Rest in power, Bob White. You've been listening to the Bystander Podcast with Joel Underwood and Timothy Self. Please join us on Patreon and go out and get some mud water. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, buddy. Be kind.